Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Watch television any night or pick up a magazine. The great majority of women are thin. For slightly different reasons, the men don't look like the average American male either. There are the, those are the images that young people see every day. The culture says you have to be thin. How the media portrays an attractive body is just one factor in why so many Americans, both women and men, and girls and boys, are suffering from eating disorders. The numbers have been growing since the 1930s. At a time when we hear there's a real problem with obesity, it may seem counterintuitive, but 20 million women and 10 million men will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime. Joining us today to answer your questions about eating disorders and uh, just talk about something that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just doesn't get as much conversation as probably what it should. Do joining us is Dr. Rachel Levine, Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and the state's Physician General. Dr. Levine, thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us is uh, Dr. Martha Levine from Penn State Hershey Adolescent Medicine. Dr. Levine, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. In particular, if you have experienced an eating disorder, we'd like to hear your story. Or maybe you, you suspect that uh, you have an eating disorder, 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Rachel Levine, I have to say that uh, when I saw those numbers, 20 million women and 10 million men in America will experience an eating disorder in their lifetimes. I, it, I just found that hard to believe. I mean, when I say that, I believe the numbers, but that it is that high. Those numbers are staggering. Uh, eating disorders is, is a, a significant problem that we see uh, in all populations. So we see uh, men and women who have eating disorders as, as well as children. And of course, that includes anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, as well as binge eating disorder, and then some specific eating disorders that children can evidence. You said that uh, we see it in all different cultures. Uh, so was researching this yesterday, I found that uh, even around the world, outside the United States, eating disorders are on the rise. One of the reasons that, uh, that that's attributed to is that so many other countries are now seeing Western television, Western magazines, Western media that, you know, some countries that didn't have TV 20 years ago say, this is what an American looks like, this is what I want to look like. So that's true. It is in countries that are uh, westernized or modernized, so particularly Western Europe, um, New Zealand, Australia. There was a study a number of years ago looking at um, Fiji, the Pacific Island Fiji, when they got electricity. And all of a sudden, they got uh, evidence of American culture. At that time, they got Beverly Hills you know, 90210, and they got Madonna. And within several years, where they didn't see eating disorders in their culture previously, they did start to see some eating disorder behavior, particularly among their young people. How much of a factor is this exposure to media compared to, I mean, in, in many cases, and well, maybe I shouldn't say many cases, I'll ask you, uh, there is mental illness involved as well. That is correct. So um, the development of an eating disorder is really the perfect storm of different factors. So one of the primary factors is biological in terms of chemical imbalances of the nervous system, and the tendency towards that can be inherited. And then there are psychological factors, both individual factors and environmental factors that might, um, that might contribute. And then you have our culture. And this is complex interplay among all of those different issues. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Martha Levine, uh you know, something that Rachel just said that uh, uh, I, I think may surprise some people as well, uh, and you didn't use the word, but I will, genetics, that genetics sometimes play a part in this, doesn't it? Oh, very much so. And I think that that's one of the important things to keep in mind, because a lot of times there can be blame or um, kind of not 
the deep understanding of eating disorders within families or within the culture. And so that if somebody is struggling with, for example, anorexia, the message can be, you know, just eat. I mean, what what's the problem here? But it's as if, you know, genetically you have depression or high blood pressure. It's something that's beyond your control. And um, if you talk to um, individuals in our clinic, Oftentimes, you will have histories of mothers or grandmothers, aunts, cousins, other individuals who have struggled with eating disorders um, themselves. There have certainly been studies of twins where um, twins who share a genetic load um, have a higher risk of both developing eating disorders than if they were separate. And it is something that, as all of these other factors come involved, if you have that genetic risk, it pushes sometimes um, individuals de- developing eating disorders. So there's a book um, by Carolyn Costin, who works in our field, um, who herself struggled with an eating disorder. And she described when she was a teenager and she and her friends went on diets, they could all stop and she couldn't. And we often hear that from individuals at times. It's almost as if a switch gets clicked and they just cannot get off the road mill trail mix of going after an eating disorder. So I, I would agree with that, is, is that certainly there is a genetic predisposition, um, and, and it has to do, um, it's complex, but it has to do with those uh, chemical imbalances of the nervous system, uh, chemicals called neurotransmitters. And it is like a pathway that it, it, with dieting or other type of eating disorder behavior, other people might do it for a short period of time, but that person gets stuck and it becomes a significant medical and psychiatric problem. The other challenge is, is that also a lot of times um, individuals can be genetically at risk for other psychiatric illnesses, such as depression or anxiety, and it is sometimes not clear which comes first. So if somebody is very anxious, what they can find is if they start using some of the eating disorder behaviors, they can numb away some of those feelings. And so then that gets caught up in it. Or if they're depressed and feel out of control with some of these intense feelings, the eating disorder can be a way to kind of handle that. So oftentimes, if we treat the other condition, then it can become easier to recover from the eating disorder. We know that uh, there are many people who, if they're depressed or suffering from some type of mental illness, uh, turn to alcohol or drugs or, you know, Maybe their mental illness uh, exhibits itself, presents itself in in some other way. Uh, Are there people, and I'm sure there are, but is it a large percentage of people that uh, have more than one illness like this? If they have an eating disorder that, I mean, many of them turn to food, obviously, but, uh, or don't, or turn away from food, but uh, are there those who turn to other things as well? Yes, and that can certainly be a challenge. So sometimes there will be people that have gone to recovery for either alcohol or drug use that end up getting referred to our clinic because as that kind of um, way to deal with numb their emotions decreases, then some of the other symptoms increase. And um, so it can be very challenging at times to kind of help individuals try to find very healthy coping strategies to deal with um, their feelings because it can go into drugs or alcohol, it can go into self-harm, it can go into the eating disorder issues and working to help them handle their emotions in a healthy way and find healthy coping strategies is part of what we do in our program. Mm -hmm. Let's take a phone call from Sarah in Shippensburg. Sarah, you're on the air. Hi, I'm a public educator and I was wondering if the experts could speak to um, the way that public educators could help identify and also support um, students who are going through eating disorder problems? That's a very good question. So I, I think that certainly um, public health and schools can play a role, um, particularly in prevention of patients with eating disorders. And so uh, what we want to do, and you pointed out the the mix, is that we have uh, young people and and adults with eating disorders, and on the other side, we have patients with obesity. Uh, One expert had called this a a toxic food environment in our culture, is that, and it can go to the both extremes. And so what we want to do is have prevention programs that target healthy behaviors, healthy eating, healthy exercise, et cetera, um, and, uh, and can work to prevent both serious types of food-related problems, obesity, as well as the eating disorders that we've been describing. Uh, there is an expert um, who's a, uh, a, a PhD dietitian in Minnesota. Her name is Diane 
Newmark Steiner, and she has written a number of books and articles about prevention programs that she has implemented um, in Minnesota uh, and studied in Minnesota about trying to prevent both types of food-related issues. I think for support, certainly we need the support of schools in treating young people uh, that we have, and, and, our, and the clinic at Penn State Hershey um, that I used to work at and Dr. Martha Pisa-Living works at um, has worked with schools all the time to support young people in uh, that are in the program. But Sarah, just to follow up a little bit on your question, you, in, you specifically wanted to know how you could identify uh, a student who may be going through this, correct? Yeah. Um, the thing is, I work, with, I work with teenagers. I'm a high school teacher. And so, you know, I've I see a lot. I see a lot of things that look like risk factors, but I'm not always completely sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, thank you very much for your call. You know, th- she's got. A, and I'm sure there are a lot of teachers who are wondering the same thing, not just uh, eating disorders, but how to identify a student who does, uh, you know, is experiencing this. And then the follow-up question is, what do they do about it? I think that's a great question. Um, I think what's most important is if you're concerned about um, how somebody is doing to make sure that any questions or any approach is done in when people have time to sit down in a very compassionate way, because um, these conversations are hard to have. And a lot of times individuals struggling with eating disorders feel very embarrassed and shameful about the um, behaviors. And so it really will be important to just kind of find out, you know, what's going on. I'm concerned about, for whatever reason, you I look like you've lost a lot of weight. You know, what's going on? Um, I'm worried that, you know, sometimes often after meals, I see you run down the hall to the bathroom. Is there something that, you know, I can help you with? Um, using counselors or school nurses or referring people to their physicians um, can be very important. But again, just a very compassionate um, way to discuss it. And being aware of just overall how comments are being made from um, in health education, from nursing, from coaches. We've had a number of times that individuals talk about, um, particularly if they're doing cross-country, that the message can be very much of how little they need to eat or how much weight they should lose so that they can run faster. And we have to really be careful about what messages we're giving because what we want is our children to be healthy and to really focus on that rather than um, a number in particular. Well, you mentioned cross-country, but wrestling is one uh-huh. that I think yes. uh, many of us, when we went through school, would hear wrestlers say, I have to make weight, I have yep. to make weight, and that would be either eating more or mm-hmm. eating less. Usually it was eating less. So sports, of, of course, and athletics can be a very healthy pursuit, but mm-hmm. we do tend to see um, eating disorders where someone's appearance or their weight is sort of part of the scoring or part of the evaluation. So you might see more eating disorders in young people participating in uh, gymnastics or participating in figure skating or, or uh, p- participating in dance like ballet um, uh, instead of basketball or, or soccer. But we, we can see eating disorders in, uh, in young people participating in all different types of athletics. And I agree 100%. The message has to be in terms of health and strength and endurance, but not in terms of losing weight to for a specific to its a specific number as part of the sport. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about eating disorders today with our guest, Dr. Rachel Levine, Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and the state's Physician General, and Dr. Martha Levine from Penn State Hershey Adolescent Medicine. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Maybe you have a story to tell. Or a really good question like Sarah had just a few minutes ago, how to recognize uh, eating disorders. 1-800-729-7532. Send that email to smarttalk at WIT 
witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. All right, I want to get into some of the specifics, the three main types of eating disorders that uh, you mentioned, but I want to talk about them specifically. Anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Uh, People may not know that overeating is considered a disorder as well, so we'll talk about that too. But if you could uh, break these down specifically, how they present themselves, what those eating disorders actually are. So um, anorexia nervosa is, is a condition where um, an individual becomes preoccupied with the issues uh, of food and weight and then starts to limit their food intake and then um, significantly lose weight. Um, there can be a number of different psychological factors associated with that and a number of different physical um, complications from that, from that weight loss, such as low blood pressure, low heart rate, and it can affect every organ of the body. Bulimia is different. Uh, patients with bulimia also have a preoccupation with food and weight, but they will evidence um, binging, which is eating a large amount of food over a short period of time with a feeling of lack of control of the eating with then um, some sort of compensatory behavior or purging. And that can be vomiting, but can also be laxatives in other ways. Um, binge eating disorder uh, is where the patient binges but doesn't have that compensatory purging behavior. And all three are serious um, eating disorders. Which of the three is most common? Um, so uh, not exactly clear. Probably um, uh, binge eating disorder and bulimia are more common. Uh, anorexia would be less common. Why does anorexia seem to get more attention, though? Um, I, I think because of uh, the way the media d- d- depicts it, um, and I think that because the... the uh, that stark image of the of the individual uh, who looks um, emaciated, who looks like they were in a famine, um, catches the public eye, and so I think that that that's what people tend to think about. That can be hard because patients with bulimia um, uh, don't th- are usually normal weight, and uh, so people don't always take it seriously that this individual might have an eating disorder, even though they might have binging and purging on a regular basis. But they don't fit that fit that stereotype of of the patient with an eating disorder, which is the patient with anorexia. A binge eating disorder, I mean, we're going to talk and we have talked about body image. Uh, binge eating disorder, are those people usually overweight? Um, so uh, many pa- pa- patients with binge eating disorder will be overweight, although they might not be morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Martha, let me ask you about um, you know, Dr. Rachel mentioned this uh, just a few minutes ago, but I wanted to expand on it a little bit. And that is, um, you know, those, what you described, that's how these uh, eating disorders present themselves. But what impact does it have on the body? Because, again, most people just think about, uh, you know, okay, they're they're making themselves vomit, uh, they're getting really thin. But when you say all the organs in the body can shut down, um, yes, I'm Dr. Rachel Levine may be able to answer this more because uh, she's a pediatrician. I'm a psychiatrist. I can tell you more about the emotional aspects of it. But um, really, with all of these, there can be significant uh, medical complications. Um, there can be a lot of electro- electrolyte imbalances, which can be potentially life-threatening. And so um, that's perhaps one of the reasons that anorexia gets some uh, more focus. Some of it is just how the news media tends to report things, because if um, Hollywood um, stars or models are very thin, then there's often this focus on thinness and questioning, you know, do they have it, do they not? And one thing that they have pointed out is that sometimes anorexia or discussions of eating disorders are reported almost as soft news. In it, that it is, it is. It, it, it's, it's right. And, and people actually joke about it when they see someone who's thin. What are you, anorexic? Right. And we've had um, patients that have gone to get bone scans to see if they how healthy their bones are, because as the body starts to break down, they um, can end up with osteoporosis and have bones um, as a 20-year-old that look like an 80-year-old woman. And we We've had them come back and say, oh, the tech was joking with me that they wish they had anorexia just for a little bit. And it's not something to joke about. It's not anything you want, because once it starts, it is very, very hard to turn this um, illness around. Dr. Rachel, what about that? So uh, as Dr. Martha Pease-Levine was saying, it, um, anorexia nervosa is, is extremely serious medical illness. And if you saw our patients who are um, uh, emaciated and ill, you, you wouldn't joke about it. So um, 
um, you know, basically the body reacts to starvation no differently than if you have anorexia, than if you're in a famine um, or, or any, other, um, any other situation. And so your body will literally eat itself up to, to keep your brain and your heart going. It's called auto-cannibalization. Your body will literally take the muscles in your body, and there are biochemical pathways to turn the muscle, uh, muscle mass into glucose to keep your vital organs going until you can't. And so your muscles shrink. It can affect your heart. Um, as she said, it can affect your bones, and patients can get very, very ill, and, and patients can die um, of, of anorexia nervosa. Bulimia is different. Bulimia, um, you have that binging and purging. If the purging is with vomiting, you can have, as she mentioned, the electrolyte disturbances, sodium, potassium, chloride. You also can have significant damage to your gastrointestinal tract, to your stomach and your esophagus. So we have seen patients with ulcers. We've seen place, patients with tears in their esophagus who vomit blood. It is. It can be a very, very serious illness. And of course, patients with binge eating disorder, if they gain a lot of weight, can have heart disease and diabetes. So these are, in addition to being serious psychiatric conditions, these are serious medical conditions. Something you said is very important about uh, people actually dying from anorexia. Um, you don't hear about that very often. Uh, I, I think about like some celebrities. It's a shame that you have to go to this, but that's what get it, gets attention sometimes. Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters, mm-hmm. 70s, a very popular uh, pop group. Uh, she and her brother was someone who died from anorexia, I believe. I know it was an eating disorder. I'm not sure it was anorexia. That is correct. That is correct. But, uh, you know, th- that this causes many deaths. This this does cause many deaths. In fact, of psychiatric illnesses, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any other psychiatric illness. So it is a very serious medical condition. It affects every organ of the body. And so what the key is that we want first to prevent it, but then if it occurs, patients need um, access to treatment. So they need um, multidisciplinary treatment, which means lots of different professionals, including medical professionals, psychiatric um, professionals, therapists, nutritionists, and there are lots of different treatment modalities. So at the same time that we talk about the seriousness of it, the vast majority of young people with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, etc., who receive a state-of-the-art multidisciplinary treatment will recover. But we want to get it early um, so we can institute that type of state-of-the-art treatment. So Go ahead, what you're saying. A couple of things that I would just make a point of. Um, part of the other reason that um, some of the eating disorders are so lethal is just because of the psychiatric aspects. So the depression and anxiety, the death can come from the medical complications, but also from suicide. And some of the other challenges of getting the state-of-the-art treatment, which is vital and which we offer at Penn State Hershey Medical Center at our eating disorders program is insurance, um, is trying to have insurance companies understand the severity of the illnesses, the amount of time that it takes to, for individuals to recover, um, to understand, um, since mental health doesn't often have parity, that they may limit the amount of time that they can get treatment in um, certain programs. Um, when people go to outpatient, they sometimes deny to have nutrition coverage unless there's a medical reason. So if you have diabetes, you can get outpatient nutrition coverage. But to try to get that covered by insurance for eating disorders is something that's a challenge, which we are trying to work on appealing and, and having that available. But it is hard not only for the families to handle this, but just to battle with insurance companies at times. Why is that? I mean, uh, do insurance, I mean, is it that it's so new that uh, there are more people who are suffering from eating disorders? Obviously, insurance companies are trying to, uh, you know, reduce their risk, put it that way. But why is it that uh, it seems like it's a, it can be a challenge to get uh, coverage? I think that in some ways that psychiatric illnesses are not often understood. Um, and so that there's a sense if you you can't see it or physically, you know, measure it, that um, it is not taken as seriously. It um, oftentimes, if patients make weight and are not underweight or are seen as close to their ideal body weight, then they're seen as cured. But yet um, there's so much emotionally that has to kind of go into helping them feel comfortable at that place so that oftentimes the insurance companies are looking at one number and we're trying to look at the big picture. And that's where some of the challenge can come. We have a caller from Lancaster. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, is uh, is that me, Scott? That, that's Thank you. you. That's you. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. 
uh, I'm wondering what the science says, reliable science, about strategies for long-term binge eaters. Uh, And I have to confess, I am one, and I know there are emotional elements, but sometimes the actions, I think, are important. Is it comparable to alcoholics who, I understand, they recommend not to drink uh, anything? Now, with binge eating, would it be better the things that one tends to binge on, ice cream, uh, you know, sweets, to just not have it at all? Well, let me just say this before uh, the doctors answer your question. is We can't make specifics di- specific, specific diagnosis on the program, but I think we can talk in generalities. Sure. So no, I, I'm I, not asking for specific. Okay, I'm asking right. for behavioral strategy. Understood. Sure. So there are some uh, very state-of-the-art evidence-based treatment strategies for patients with eating disorders, so binge eating disorder as well as bulimia as well as anorexia, and they emphasize the importance, as I mentioned, of the multidisciplinary team. Having medical treatment, having uh, psychiatric treatment, uh, including the use of targeted psychiatric medications, which are not a cure but can be helpful, and then counseling and therapy. So that combination of medical follow-up, of having um, an evaluation by a psychiatrist and consideration of medications um, and uh, psychiatric medications, and then um, seeing um, a a therapist to talk about the the underlying emotional issues. One of the, the best therapies for patients with bulimia and binging disorders is cognitive behavioral therapy, and then also seeing a dietitian to work out as the individual, as the person was talking about, sort of an individualized meal plan um, that would help them control their uh, their urges to binge. So there's not one quick fix, but that type of team offers the best chance of recovery. Let me just ask uh, our caller a question. You you were talking about some of the specific foods that uh, you you do binge on. It sounds as if you're trying to control it yourself. Would that be accurate? Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I'm familiar with all that, but I think maybe the doctors, Dr. David Kesterson, the, he was the former, I think, U.S. Uh, surgeon. He uh, came out with a book, The End of Overeating, and if I'm not mistaken, his strategy was, I mean, I know all that about uh, the cognitive therapy, and that's all helpful, but I think it gets in the end, what's the best strategy, or what does the science say? Should one act, I mean, like with alcoholism, is, uh, you know, not drink, or, you know, what what does the science say? I'm not interested so much in my particular situation, right. but... What does the science say about a good behavioral strategy relative to uh, food? All right. Thank you very much for your call. I think what she's talking about is trying to avoid... The, the binge eating. Right. So the, um, uh, um, there are similarities and differences between eating disorders and addictions. One of the differences, um, as she was mentioning, is that if someone has the disease of alcoholism, one of the treatments is to stay away, of course, from alcohol and stay away from those environments. But you do have to eat. In terms of a behavioral strategy, Dr. Levine? So I, I think it is a challenge, and, and, and that is where some of the differences between um, alcoholism and eating disorders can come, as our patients will say. I have to face my challenge um, every time I sit down um, at times to eat. Um, We try within our program to not look at good foods and bad foods and try to work on portion control, but certainly we are aware that sometimes when individuals are struggling with like bulimia or binge eating disorder, that there may be targeted times where you don't have a large amount of that quantity of food in the house just so that the temptation is not there. So when we've had families, we've tried to work to educate them that going and buying you know chips um, in large quantities from some of the superstores may not be the best plan if your daughter or son is trying to recover from bulimia nervosa because having that there um, is certainly difficult then um, to kind of 
deal with day in and day out. We have a related question. Uh, Linda uh, asked, uh, does the choice of foods matter for bulimia or binge eating disorders? Is it mostly junk foods? Would changing to fruits and vegetables or other healthy options make a difference? So that is true, and, and I think that that would be necessary, but it's not sufficient to recover from true bulimia nervosa. I, you really need, uh, especially counseling and therapy, particularly um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So, um, yes, people tend to binge on sweets. They tend to binge on, on ice cream and cookies and things like that. Although we have had patients who binge on fruits and vegetables as well. Really? Um, so it, it can vary. Um, but portion control is very important. And having a balance a balanced diet, you know, three, uh, three meals a day, snacks, a variety of different foods, um, moderate exercise, um, pu putting all of that balance together, and then having um, a plan with the therapist in order to to implement that. That, I think, is one of the important things. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, go to a few more emails here. Nicole asks, I had a visit with my cousin and her son recently. He is 16 and extremely thin. I know that anorexia is a condition that often plagues young girls. But I also know boys and men can be affected as well. How do I know if this is an eating disorder or a growth spurt? The family has been through a lot of turmoil with divorce and other issues. I feel like it's hard to address this issue with my cousin since she has been through so much. Thoughts on how to proceed? Well, I think one way to proceed is to have... Um the young man seen by their pediatrician to see whether they're falling off the growth curve. So some of it you can tell um, for young um, children is it may not sometimes even be if they're losing weight, but if they're not gaining weight and staying on their growth curve, that can be um, an indication that they are struggling with um, anorexia. I think, you know, overall monitoring how they're eating, um, seeing whether they're becoming overly active, um, making sure that they have had a chance, if there has been a lot of family turmoil, to talk about issues. So do they need their own counseling just to be able to process some of their emotions? So I would agree with that. I mean, I mean, so with I think the best thing for them to see their pediatrician or family physician, school is coming up when they need uh, checkup, immunizations, etc. Use that opportunity to check uh, and see that we also see patients who are losing weight from anorexia to have a very low heart rate, to have a very low blood pressure, often to be cold uh, because they can't heat their body temperature up. So there are many different factors uh, and then have their physician or therapist maybe talk with the young person about their thoughts and feelings about the, the family difficulties that they've been having. I've when, never, go ahead. One thing to keep in mind with um, kind of the low heart rate is sometimes if people are athletes, um, they will have low heart rates just because their heart is functioning so effectively. And it is a little bit of a challenge when our patients have very low heart rates that sometimes they're told, oh, you have a athlete's heart. Well, an athlete's heart makes sure that it maintains the blood pressure so that if they're getting dizzy when they stand up or if their blood pressure is dropping, that's showing that it's not that their heart is so healthy. It's that their heart is just barely kind of managing because it's, they've not had enough food. So that's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. Also, patients with who have an athletic heart, whose heart is so strong that they are that it can beat slowly, very rarely have a heart rate less than 40. It's possible, but it would be very unusual. And as Dr. Martha Peasley Levine said, if if they stand up, they're able to maintain their blood pressure. One thing their doctor can do is to do what are called orthostatic pulse and blood pressure changes. Check it lying down and check it standing up. If their blood pressure drops significantly and their pulse rises to compensate, you know, uh, elite athletes can uh, stand up without dropping their blood pressure and faint. But another point I wanted to bring up that uh, the, the caller raised as well, and that is between uh, girls and boys, men and women. Uh, very often we think of an eating disorder with young women, and we do know that just from those numbers I gave earlier, about 20 million women uh, and 10 million men, but still 10 million men. We don't think of it. Why is that? That uh, is it? Are, are boys or men different? I mean, are they less uh, willing to come forward and say, yeah. yeah, I think I have a problem? That's exactly true. And that's part of the challenge, um, because a lot of the media focuses on women and is often seen as a women's disease. And so there is a reluctance um, for men to come forward at times. And there's probably also a bias among healthcare professionals to identify it in young men. And so they're often seen as just kind of more athletic or um, 
not necessarily raise questions as to whether they're binging, um, purging, um, without even really kind of exploring any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, you you were talking about uh, when you go to the doctor, you know, before school or whatever. Uh, are physicians, are family doctors in tune? Because most often uh, you'll hear a story or, I mean, I've experienced it, where doctors will say, I'd like you to lose a little weight. Do Are they you know, open to saying, I think you're a little underweight. Is there a problem here? You need to put on some weight. You need to eat better. Well, I, I think that it's really important to educate um, uh, healthcare professionals, to educate medical students, to ed- educa- educate um, physicians in training, as well as physicians in practice about the signs and symptoms of eating disorders so that they can um, be aware of that and also to be very careful of their language. So, you know, if someone is overweight, if they're obese, then we want them to be healthy. But how you articulate that, how the physician or the other healthcare professional says that can, can be very important. So uh, one of the things that we have done, um, and when I was at Penn State Hershey, um, uh, and, and the program was to educate medical students and residents, and I know that the team continues to do that. So I think there are a couple of ways that people can get more information. So the Academy of Eating Disorders has um, a pamphlet about medical signs and symptoms of eating disorders. So certainly physicians can get information there. NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorders Association, mm-hmm. which Dr. Rachel Levine is going to talk about in just a second, can provide information. Um, we are happy from the Penn State Hershey Eating Disorders Clinic to do outreach programs. So if there are any schools or um, other organizations that want more information, we are more than happy to provide education. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're discussing eating disorders today with Dr. Rachel Levine, Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and the state's Physician General, and Dr. Martha Levine from Penn State Hershey Adolescent Medicine. If you have a question or a comment, story to tell, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment, tell a story on WITF's Facebook page and on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Rachel Levine, you wanted to uh, discuss uh, NIDA. And I, yes. I just mentioned to you that this is where I got a lot of my information, a fabulous website and uh, just a wealth of information. Yes, thank you. I, I do want to highlight the National Eating Disorder Association, or NIDA. They're a, a nationwide advocacy group uh, for patients and families struggling with eating disorders, and they have uh, a great annual conference. And actually, the Department of Health w- is working with them on having uh, a convening of a, of a roundtable of experts um, uh, from Penn State Hershey as well as from, uh, uh, for instance, the Renfrew Center in Philadelphia, the uh, Western Psychiatry Institute program in Pittsburgh, etc., um, to discuss eating disorders and all the different aspects, prevention, uh, evaluation, treatment. So that will that will be uh, held during the Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which will be in February 2018. So we're just starting to kind of work on that. I understand that Pennsylvania, and I, I, I saw this description several places, that Pennsylvania is considered the epicenter of eating disorders because, number one, we have so many, but number two, we have so many places where it is treated. Well, well, we have some excellent programs, and, and uh, again, the Penn State Hershey Eating Disorder Program, the Renfrew Center, um, uh, COPE, the Center for Overcoming Problem Eating at Western Psychiatry Institute, um, Brandywine Hospital has a program, so we have some excellent, comprehensive, multidisciplinary treatment programs. Um, but still, I would say um, not enough because, you know, that, that that's in uh, Hershey and Philly and near Pittsburgh, but there's a wide, we have a large state, and so there's still a not enough healthcare professionals uh, who are experienced in treating eating disorders. So we want to continue to improve that as well. Uh, we have another email here. Uh, can you ask your guests if they know what psychiatric medicines are most effective at managing the emotional issues that are a factor in eating disorders, or is it just a trial and error process? There are many choices, like Wellbutrin. Is that what it? or Prozac. However, many of these also have associated weight gain, and therefore it's difficult to know what to ask a primary care doctor to try. So that's a great question, and there's no one answer. Um, So a lot of times, um, well, there are a number of antidepressants, so if somebody is struggling with... 
depression or anxiety in addition to their eating disorder, it is a little bit um, trial and error. We go by family history. So if somebody else in the family has done well on one particular medication, that might be something that we try first. Um, A couple of guidelines. Well, Butrin actually is not used for individuals for mood issues um, if they struggle with an eating disorder. There was a time when they were first testing Wellbutrin that they found that individuals who had eating disorders um, had a higher risk of having grand mal seizures on Wellbutrin. So um, I can't say never, but it's really not something that we would want to use because of the potential risk factors. Um, It seems that it lowers the seizure threshold, and if somebody is having um, complications with um, electrolytes in particular, that those two combinations together can put them at risk. Um, Other ways that um, medications have been used um, for bulimia nervosa, Prozac um, in particular, but other SSRIs or antidepressants are used sometimes at higher doses, not only if the person is depressed and anxious, but just to help with the eating disorder symptoms themselves. So that does seem to help with binging and purging. Um, sometimes Topamax, although again, that has to be adjusted very much, can sometimes decrease a little bit of some of the binging. Um, Vyvanse has been used in binge eating disorders, and so that's been FDA approved. It um, shouldn't just be used without also providing um, psychiatric care because it is a controlled substance, and you really don't want somebody just on that for a long period of time without starting to learn other emotional um, ways to try to deal with what the underlying issues are. None of this is um, over so. the counter. Uh, no. No, it all has to be prescribed. Yes. Yeah. We have uh, a call here from Stephanie in York. Stephanie, you're on the air. I only have time to ask the question and then hang up. Okay. But I was right. just wondering what evidence you have as to the success rate of applying a 12-step program to eating disorders. Thank you very much for your call. What about that? Um, so uh, there is not a lot of robust evidence uh, for 12-step programs for eating disorders. Um, I, I think that the, there's uh, uh, there's evidence really uh, supports the multidisciplinary treatment, is having uh, someone follow the medical issues, um, having a psychiatrist evaluate the the need for medication. But medication, as uh, Dr. Martha Pizzolivin was saying, is, is no miracle. It's no magic pill. And is off, uh, best used in, in, in collaboration with other treatments, such as uh, counseling and therapy, and then nu- nutrition treatment. So um, although a 12-step program might be supportive uh, for recovery, um, really you need uh, this multidisciplinary type of treatment. And, and this is not a cure, remember. Uh, the, a cure implies that we give a medicine and we do a treatment and, and the patient is fixed. This is a recovery. What we can do as healthcare professionals is provide the tools that the patient can use in, in collaboration with their family to help them get better. And I'd like to emphasize the importance of, of the family and to get back to something that was being stated before. Before, in the past 20, 30 years, Years ago, we tended to blame families. Um, uh, we tended to think that that, that uh, the mother or sometimes the father was really the cause, and uh, that 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 was very unfair. And so the treatment at that time often was an inpatient hospitalization, which separated the young person from their family. The the state of the art treatment now is is family, especially for young people, for both anorexia and bulimia, is family based or family centered, um, and uh, and we involve the family very much in the care of their of. Their a young person, and there are a number of different protocols to do that. But the the, the family, uh, especially for young people, is critically important to help them recover. Something you just said uh, that I think it's very important is that you're you're never cured. Is that what? I want to make sure. No. Okay, you didn't say never cured, but you said you're recovering. Many people think of that, and they make that comparison with an alcoholic, for example, that you're always in recovery. That you know, you start drinking again. You know, you had a problem. Is the same thing with food? No. So okay. uh, again, uh, one of the differences between an eating disorder and, a, and an addiction. So it's not a cure; it's a recovery process. But I, I, I unlike an addiction, where you, you're always susceptible, I think people can really, truly, completely recover okay. from All their right. eating disorder. I, I, and and so they do not have an eating disorder anymore. Um, there's um, uh, Jenny Schaefer, uh, an author who uh, has written a number of different books. One is called Life Without Ed. Talks about her. Rec- recovery period, that she was recovered from her eating disorder, and she goes out and talks about that 
uh, th- throughout the country. What I wanted to highlight, though, is that it's not something that the, the, the medical team fixes. It's something that the patient okay. recovers from. But unlike an addiction, I firmly believe that you can completely recover from an eating disorder. And if you don't completely recover, you can get to a point where you are in a very good recovery. And all that would really mean is just having an awareness that when you have certain stresses in your life, that that may be kind of what comes first is kind of forgetting to eat or something like that. And that doesn't mean that they slip back into the eating disorder. It's just being kind of aware, okay, this is my my stress point and this is what I have to watch. Let's take a phone call from Rachel in Lancaster. Rachel, you're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I I just wanted to um, say how much I appreciate the panel today and how everything rings so true. I suffered from an eating disorder for a few years uh, in my college years. Um, I'm in my early 30s now, and I'm so encouraged to say that it is true that you can get to a really wonderful point of recovery or even full recovery from an eating disorder. So quickly, I... um, I suffered from anorexia and bulimia, and some of the triggers looking back for me were I was a very shy person in middle school and high school. It was a way for me to um, feel like I could get positive attention. I felt like I was more in control if I could control my look, and it was very lonely, and the things that helped me to pull through were... um, since anxiety and depression were also part of it, uh, cognitive cognitive um, behavior therapy. I went on an antidepressant for a short period, like maybe a year or so, and it helped tremendously. And then also um, how important the element of like family and friend support and love was. I found the person who ended up being my husband at the time, he was so instrumental. Um, giving um, unconditional love to me through that period. So it was truly that multi-pronged approach of being able to talk about what was the trigger for my eating disorder, um, having some medication to really give me that boost, and then having not being left behind, not being alone with my thoughts and with my compulsions, but to um, have strong relationships to help me get through it. And lastly, the thing that helped me boost over to really say I could to say I'm fully recovered is um, after I got married I, I have two beautiful children and another one due in a month <laughs> and the wonderful emphasis on um, not just being stuck in my own self but having other people to take care of and realizing that the body is meant for so much more than just looks but for purpose has been tremendous so hey, hey, Rachel. the encouragement I can give to others it can be done Rachel, I'm glad you called in because I think uh, just the last couple minutes uh, telling your story uh, and how successful you've been in overcoming your eating disorder and how happy your family is, I think that will just do a world of good for those people out there listening. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Perfect uh, testimonial. Absolutely wonderful story. Congratulations to her on on, on her recovery, and I think it it um, it evidences the hope that we would like to instill in patients and families better than anything that I could say. Mm-hmm. Let's take another phone call from Anne in Camp Hill. Anne, you're on the air. Yes. Hi. Hi. You're on the air. Go I ahead. Ba- I basically want to know if if you're diagnosed with diabetes. If that adds to the problem of eating disorder. Thank you very much for your call. So um, we do see uh, patients with diabetes who can develop an eating disorder. Um, Some of it might be because of the attention that patients with diabetes have to pay to what they eat and when they eat it, etc. Now that by itself doesn't lead to an eating disorder, but that with other biological features, other environmental issues and other mental health issues uh, could lead to an eating disorder. Uh, Patients with a comorbid diabetes and an eating disorder are very challenging to treat, but with the team approach, uh, it can be very successful. Let's take one more call. Cecilia is in Hershey. Cecilia, are you on the air? Yes. Uh, my question is, I'm wondering if there are any programs for children with eating disorders. The child that I'm thinking about is now nine years old, and ever since I can remember, when she was one, two years old, always fixated on eating. Did not, doesn't seem to be an emotional problem there, but always 
wants to eat, never seems to be full. And we've been able to control her so far with portion control, education, eating right, exercise, et cetera, et cetera. But there still is this urge to always want to eat. Is there anything that can be done for a situation like that? Thank you very much for your call. So um, certainly at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center in our eating disorders program, we do have um, treatment uh, partial, um, which is a day program and outpatient services available for children um, as young as typically eight um, up to 15 for that program. And then we have services for older adolescents and adults um, all the way up to age typically 40 um, within that program, um, our different programs. So if individuals want any information about the services here in the area, the best number is 717-531-7235 is our um front desk for the eating disorders program and you can get directed to the um, correct place. You know, and that question reminds me of uh, something that's very important as well. Uh, There probably are people who do overeat. I mean, we know we have an obesity uh, problem in this country. There probably are people who overeat, who don't eat a whole lot. We've heard people say, oh, you eat like a bird. Uh, That maybe don't have an eating disorder. How do you know the difference? When is it when is it time to seek treatment? So um, there is no specific test. There's no blood test for anorexia, bulimia, or binging disorder. It really would be a clinical evaluation from the individual's doctor, maybe a specialty evaluation, as has been discussed. And so it really is um, the, the, the idea of how preoccupied someone is with food and weight, how preoccupied they are with body image, and then their actual eating behavior. So so different, different people eat in different ways, but is it becoming clinically significant? Is it affecting their mind and their body and their family and their functioning? And if it is, that sounds like variations of eating disorders. And if it's just their habits, then it's not. Where do you go to first? If you have a, a suspicion or uh, you're concerned about someone or yourself, where do you go first? I, I think that for many people, the first place would be their physician, uh, would be their pediatrician, their internal medicine physician, their family physician, maybe their OBGYN for a medical evaluation. Um, and then, um, and then I, I guess uh, if there's concerns among their healthcare professionals, then to get a consultation at a program, such as the ones we've been discussing. Real quick, there's only about 30 seconds. Uh, we had a caller mentioned she's pregnant. You have an eating disorder and uh, as a woman and you get pregnant uh, potential for problems well so so um, yes so potential uh, if you have an active eating disorder right, when right. you're pregnant yeah. so um, so if you a very challenging patient which we have treated is an actively pregnant woman uh, with an active eating disorder if you had an eating disorder in the past there's no you're reason fine. to think that there would be a problem but if you have active symptoms that requires multidisciplinary treatment I want to thank both of you for being with us today, Dr. Rachel Levine and Dr. Martha Levine. Thank you very much for being with us. Great information. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, well, we have a, a multiple topics on tomorrow's program. Amongst them, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, there's been uh, a rash of hit and runs with people riding bicycles. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org slash spine.